And we have a special guest with us, um, a friend, if you will, of Discovery Church, a man that I've known for several years now. He has actually been at Discovery to teach on a couple different occasions in days gone by. I actually had him scheduled to teach here in early August of this year, but the pandemic got in the way. And so I said to him, hey, Brian, can we hold off for now, reschedule? And uh, fortunately, his schedule opened up such that he's able to be here with us this weekend. His name is Brian Loritz. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit something about Brian. <clears throat> uh, Brian has been married to his wife, Corey, for 21 years. They have uh, three boys, 19, 18, and 16, I believe it is. And uh, he's currently serving as the teaching pastor of Summit Church located in North Carolina. He's the author of seven books. And by the way, I would highly recommend that, uh, that if interested, after you hear him this morning, that you go to whatever source you find books on and get a few of his books. He just came out recently with one called The Dad Difference. And I had a chance to skim through it recently. And uh, just a little bit of what I read going through it uh, that is worth uh, the read, okay? And um, anyway, one of the specific reasons that he's here this weekend is because we're talking about DC on mission, and God has placed in Brian's heart specifically a passion for something that's important to us here, to me here in the life of Discovery Church, and that is a passion for the multicultural, multi-ethnic church, that the body of Christ be a place where the unity, the oneness of God is seen and experienced through the diversity of people that God has, has created. And so would you join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Brian Loritz. <clears throat> and we're allowed to do this. All right. All right. Well, Brian, just so people can get to know you a little bit, let's start with your story, where you come from and all that sort of thing, where God got a hold of your life, and then specifically uh, where, where God and how God placed a passion for the multicultural, multi-ethnic church on your heart. Well, thanks, Don. You know, every time I'm here, um, you know, I think I always think back to one of the last times I came to preach and I was talking about the idolatry of family. And I think I told you guys to calm down. Uh, your kids won't uh, turn out pros because they got your genes, and it hit me. Oh my gosh, the pastor of this church—that's not true of. So, anyways, um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I've just been blessed. Uh, grew up in a home. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but the older I get, the more I appreciate it. Where uh, two parents who um, uh, greatly loved the Lord modeled for me and my siblings just what an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. Um, my dad's a preacher, and every time I get a chance to introduce him, I always say he's more impressive in private than he is in public. Uh, this Amen. whole idea of integrity was just really lived out uh, before me. Uh, not only that, but next year, they're gonna celebrate 50 years of marriage, Amen. half century of marriage. Um, I asked dad, what are you doing? And he says, your mother's gonna let me play golf at um, St. Andrews in Scotland. So, like, really? Wow. I guess you gotta be married 50 years to pull that off. So, <laughs> um, and you know, but at the, one of the major gifts they gave me um, in, in light of all this is they just kind of orchestrated my life so that I was always having these multi ethnic experiences. So we went to black church on Sunday, I started to say Sunday morning, Sundays, uh, you know, if you know the traditional it black church, it wasn't just Sunday morning, yeah. it was all day. Yeah. Um, 
And, um, you know, then our schools were about 50% black, 50% white. And then my dad was on staff with a predominantly uh, white Christian organization, now known as Crew. In fact, I think their new president goes to uh, he does, church one of our here. Elders. Yep. And, um, and so that was my life, you know, being around all African Americans on Sunday, 50 50 during the week. And then I'd pop into my dad's work or whatever. So, and then their friendships naturally were multi-ethnic. And the family I grew up in, there wasn't this sense of smiling in people's faces and then kind of talking about them behind their back. I saw dad just, mom and dad authentically love people. So that was just kind of instilled in me. Uh, at the age of 17, I acknowledged my call to vo vocational ministry, take off for Bible college and seminary. And then I remember sitting in a New Testament survey class, and we're just walking through the book of Acts, and it kind of hit me, huh, whenever Paul goes to plant a church, he walks into a city and asks two questions. One, where's the synagogue? Because mm -hmm. I want to preach Christ to the Jews. But then he's not done. He wants yeah. to know where the Gentiles hang out. Right. Um, if he's in Athens, he goes up to Mars Hill. And he doesn't start two separate churches. He starts one church and says, Jew and Gentile, I know you all don't like each other, but now there's a new humanity, and I want you to flesh out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for you vertically. Amen. And I was floored, because I didn't learn that in my flannel board Sunday school classes growing up, but I was floored at the revelation that, that the norm of the first century church wasn't homogeneity, it was multi-ethnicity. And, and we've gotten so off track from that, I wanna be a part of arcing back to that. And so, you know, a, itinerant ministry was starting to grow and uh, I was nursing a quiet frustration that whenever I stood up to speak somewhere, it was either all black or all white or all whatever. And I just began to pray a quiet prayer, Lord, I want to be a part of, you know, the solution. And yeah. so in 2003, uh, God called us to plant a church. Uh, we wanted to go to the most segregated city along black-white lines specifically in the country, and it was Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, 26 people uh, in a living room. A couple years later, several thousand, 65% white, 35% African-American, um, that's kind of where the passion really took off. That's awesome. That's awesome. What a great heritage and a great message to us as parents, right? The impact that our example um, has and is intended to have in the lives of our, of our, of our children. So we thank your folks. Please, please pass on our congratulations on 50 years. Uh, that's no small achievement either in the world today. So anyway. All right, so let's talk 2020. Uh, very few of us want to go back and have a, a do-over on 2020. We've had uh, uh, strife upon strife, upon strife, on top of a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But let's talk specifically about the strife within the racial tensions that we, we've seen. What, what do you say would be one or two of kind of the main observations and takeaways that we should be noting uh, as the church as we look at what's unfolded there? Yeah, you know, a um, buddy of mine told me he saw a person wearing a T-shirt the other day, and it had up on the top of it 2020 beneath it were like five stars but none of them were shaded and underneath <laughs> that was do not recommend um that's kind of been our been, yeah. been our year and you know it's been a whole lot going on of course you know we're living in the middle of a pandemic uh in the middle of all this you know um there's a contentious you know presidential yeah. election 
Uh, and then on top of all that, that comes right on the heels of, you know, some pretty egregious um, video documented killings of African Americans, whether it's Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or, or George Floyd. I actually think a lot of those things work together in tandem. So the global protests that we saw, I think because we were already living this quarantine life, um, there was just this pent up frustration that we felt. Um, I tend to be optimistic. Um, I think the good thing that I saw was I've never felt so much um, white empathy and white advocacy. Um, you know, there was just this onslaught of this is ridiculous, how can we help, especially in the aftermath of George Floyd. So I think that's, that's a huge, huge thing um, that I'm incredibly grateful for. But I would also say this, um, you know, people say we're, we're more divided than ever. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I think what the pandemic and these racial incidents revealed was we were already divided. It just kind of ripped the covers away. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I go to people's social media posts um, and they happen to post on race, um, forget what they say, it's the comments that I find particularly egregious. And the disparity of viewpoints, where you've got one group of people saying one thing, another group of people saying another, and then you add in the Christian component, where we're supposed to be known by our love, mm -hmm. uh, you just kind of go, we're, we've got a lot of work to do here. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of empathy and understanding that I'm seeing really fleshed out among us. But I think it's ripe. I, I, I think 2020 uh, not only exposed the problem, but exposed the lack of leadership. You know, when I look at the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement was located squarely within the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, before they would take to the streets to protest, they would literally gather in churches. They'd sing the songs of Zion. They would hear speeches, many of which anchored in the truth of scripture given to them by Christian leaders, pastors, so on and so forth. When I look at the protests in 2020, as great as they were for calling attention, you wanna go, where, where's the spiritual leadership here? Where's the Christian leadership? And sadly, we're, we're, not, we're not leading, we're arguing about critical race theory when people are dying in the streets. So there's some good things, but we've got a long way to go. Okay, so going back to the days of civil rights, um, uh, the cry for justice and change uh, for, the, for the desire ultimately of reconciliation and unity. Today we hear the word activism. What's the difference between activism and reconciliation? It's a great question. Activism is a great thing, um, but there's a difference between the two. Uh, activists tend to be issue-driven. Reconcilers tend to be people-driven. Activists are focused on the what. Reconcilers are focused on the who. Um, so when you have an activist, there can almost be this, um, this bitterness to them. You know, we gotta get this fixed or get this solved, and I don't care how it gets done, it's just gotta get, get it done. 
A reconciler is, is concerned not just with the what, but how do we say this? Because I want a relationship with you. If there's a book I would recommend to you along these lines, it is Bishop Desmond Tutu's incredible book, No Future Without Forgiveness. And Bishop Desmond Tutu in this book, No Future Without Forgiveness, he talks about um, post-apartheid South Africa and how their interests weren't just changing laws. Neither did they want to just heap piles of guilt or shame on, um, on, on white individuals. They actually wanted to see blacks and whites come together. And so in order to do that, they set up this thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where all you had to do was come to this commission, confess your atrocities to the person that you had violated, and, and you could be forgiven. And there could be a pathway into relationship. That's never happened in America. Um, we stopped at changing laws. We didn't move to relationships. And because of that, I think we're still in the mess that we're in. Yeah, all right. So let's talk about some of the, um, the words and phrases that have really emerged over these last uh, several months. <clears throat> One of them is racism. Uh, we, we've heard a lot about racism and systemic racism. What is racism, how is it expressed, and how is it felt? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> this opens up a bit of a hornet's nest. It's a huge sociological debate. So <clears throat> there's prejudice, there's discrimination, there's racism. Um, you know, I, I think no one people group has a monopoly on being prejudiced. No one people group uh, has a monopoly on discrimination. The debate with racism and in the halls of academia is many people see racism as being infused with power, right? So it's, it's <laughs> discrimination that is, that is absolutely empowered. So let me give you an example of this. Um, I pastored for 12 years in Memphis, Tennessee, and like many southern cities, uh, Memphis has several um, Christian and independent schools that were started post Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Um, in the Christian community in Memphis, what happened was, when Brown versus Board of Education comes down and the Supreme Court says, you have to integrate public schools, <clears throat> the Christian community in Memphis, the white Christian community, pretty much says, our kids are not gonna go to school with those kids. We know we can't start our own public schools, so we'll start our own private schools and price out the undesirables. That's racism. That is using power to um, devoid people of opportunity, and that's clear. I'm not saying only white people can be racist. I am saying only those who have power can be racist. Okay. All right, so out of that, let's take on another one that creates quite a bit of emotional response uh, on every side, and that's the phrase white privilege. We're hearing a lot about white privilege. What, what's right, what's wrong? What's white privilege all about? All right. Um, <clears throat> Don, no, really, nothing is off boundaries yes. here, right, friends? Yeah, you're, you're really putting right? me at the deep end of the pool here. <laughs> um, I hate that <laughs> phrase. I, I don't like that phrase at all, and I'll tell you why in just a few moments. But the reality is we still live in a world that, um, to a lesser degree today, praise God, but it still very much is a reality that our society caters to whiteness, very much so. 
Um, you know, as an African-American man, I'm constantly in tune with the fact that I'm an African-American. And I make decisions unconsciously throughout the day. Um, my wife and I were on a road trip a couple years ago. We're driving through Mississippi. I get pulled over by the police, um, wasn't speeding. I asked the officer very respectfully, sir, what's wrong? You need to know my wife is half Irish, half Hispanic. Um, he won't answer my question. He's looking around. He says to my wife, are you okay? So, so th there, there are some things that I intuitively feel, right, um, in this society. When, when, I go, when I go to purchase a car, if I intuitively say, if there's a white person who's the salesperson um, and he doesn't seem too thrilled to wait on me, again, these are quick reads that could be inaccurate, the first thing I do is say, run my credit. Because I want to I wanna remove any kind of biases that you may have against me. Um, I mean, I can go on with illustrations. I mean, I, we, we move into a neighborhood a couple months ago, second black family in the neighborhood. I go on prayer walks in the morning. Intuitively, uh, one of these prayer walks, I'm like 15 yards or so behind a, a white lady. Um, it's a cool morning. I have on a hoodie. I take off my hoodie, I move to the other side of the street just to make her feel comfortable. Um, I could tell you of the time in which um, when my wife and I were engaged, just weeks away from being married, um, I go to, put, uh, to, to look at an apartment, the landlord happens to be a white lady, I says, well how much do I need to put down? And she says, I need the first six months in advance. Now this is in California, by the way. Um, <coughs> I said, well, that's just strange, that's weird. So I send my wife, or my fiance at the time, independent of me, and she inquires of the same apartment from the same lady, and the lady says to her, oh, just give me first and last months. So this stuff is real. It's absolutely real. And so what I want my white brothers and sisters to understand is, don't ever feel bad about being white, and don't let anybody make you feel bad. If I read John right in Revelation chapter five, John says, I looked up into heaven and I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. How do you know on sight differences in people groups unless you're seeing differences in color? Mm -hmm. See, my blackness is not a fruit of the fall. Neither is your whiteness, neither is your you know, Latino, Latinaness, to make up a word. That's not a fruit of the fall, right? But race has done such a number on us in America that we either go to the colorblind ethnic, ethic or we go to the idolatry ethic. When I understand that, I would say to my white brothers and sisters, don't feel bad about God creating you as being white. And yes, you do have privilege in a society that still caters to whiteness. But privilege is not the issue. If privilege was the issue, then Jesus Christ, who is the most privileged person to have ever walked the face of the earth, we'd have a problem with him. Philippians 2 says of Jesus, um, you know, that though he were in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But then he talks about how he emptied himself. 
He died on a cross for us so that Jesus uses his divine privilege to serve us, to make us better. The issue isn't privilege, it's what are you doing with it? It's the stewardship of privilege. I have a measure of privilege. I just told you, my parents celebrated 50 years of marriage. That's a measure of privilege. I would bring my, my friends home from high school, my African-American friends who came from single-parent homes, and they, they're sitting at the dinner table with us. They, they would call us the Huxtables. I guess today that's not too good of a compliment, but back then it was. Everybody uh, <laughs> over 40 got that. If you're 18, you have no idea what he's talking about. Go okay? to Amazon Prime, yeah, stream just, it. Yeah, go Google it, Huxtables. So, but I shouldn't feel bad about that. The, the issue is what are you doing with that privilege? So I don't like white privilege because the way it's used, it's used as a guilt-shaming thing. But I would also say you're not off the hook. Yeah. steward that privilege well to help better people. Yeah, privilege always carries responsibility. It's a wonderful thing to be privileged if you're using your privilege to live out a responsibility That's and right. to fulfill a responsibility. What a blessing. In effect, it's, it's God's economy. I'm gonna bless you in right. order for you to be able to bless someone else. That's right. It's what God said to Abraham way back in you know, Genesis 12. I'm gonna bless you, bless your family, and through you, bless the nation's uh, of the earth. That's right. right. Uh, you know, what a, what a wonderful thing. All right, let me give you another, another uh, uh, hot button phrase. We've seen it on t-shirts. We've seen it written in streets. Black Lives Matter, BLM. Uh, as the people of God, what is that saying to us and how should we be responding to it? Yeah, so I think we need to tease out the difference between the organization and the sentiment, right? Um, so I would just say, and I've had conversations like this with my African-American friends, uh, you know, people that I know. I would say, let's just put, let's just put Jesus to the side. As an African-American, you should not be with the Black Lives Matter movement. Because if you go to their website, their stated mission is to see the destruction of the nuclear family. Yeah. Any sociologist would tell you um, that there's a direct line between the health of a society and the health of a family. And as much as the African-American family has gone through since day one, I mean, slavery was predicated on dividing the family. We're still trying to recover from that, and along comes a movement who wants to get rid of the nuclear family. I have deep, deep issues with that. <laughs> Even more importantly, as a Christian, I filter everything not through my ethnicity. I filter it through the word of God. Amen. So while I acknowledge I am an African-American man and this is a part of God's Imago Day for me, I don't eradicate my blackness, but I must subjugate my blackness to my Jesusness. And that's what you must do if you're white, Latino, Latina, whatever it, whatever it may be. I don't want to idolize that because when I idolize that, now I can you know, come to agreement with things that are clearly unbiblical. So I have a Christian worldview, I have a set of lenses that navigate how I see things. And that forces me to conclude Black Lives Matter is incongruent with the word of God. That's the organization. Right. The sentiment though is necessary. See, all lives cannot matter until black lives matter. 
I've got three teenage boys, 19, 18, 16. My first, when I teach them to drive a car, the first lesson is not there's the gas, there's the brake. The first lesson is what to do when you get pulled over by a cop. And I don't care how you see yourself, we live in a racialized society. So I need you to be calm. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. No sudden movements. My driver's license registration, it's in the glove box. Do I have your permission? See, these are the realities. Because unfortunately for some, and listen, uh, let me just say this about uh, police officers. I have a huge amount of respect and sympathy for the job they play. They oftentimes have to make split-second decisions that are life-altering. And we give them incredible honor and respect because it's due them. Amen. But for some individuals, and it's not indicative of many or most, for some individuals, they don't necessarily value your life or treat your life the same. And so I need you to understand these principles. This is the reality of what it means to be an African-American. And so what's interesting to me, though, is, this is the most controversial thing I'll say, um, is that I've got friends of mine. Look, I'm a registered independent, don't like partisan politics, but I've got friends of mine who, who voted for, for Trump, which is fine. And they're strong believers, love the Lord. But they would say, I voted for the party, I voted the policy, and not the person. So they would, some of my friends, this is an indicative of all of them, they would say, let's tease out the difference between person and party. I would say, we need to do the same thing with Black Lives Matter. If you can tease out the difference over there, then we can tease out the difference between the movement and the sentiment. All lives matter is not a true statement until black lives matter. And that's, that's really important. Yeah. The enemy who's a deceiver and a distorter of truth and he lives in the world of half-truth has co-opted the statement. That's right. Attaching it to an organization opposed to the things of God while the statement God is completely on board with. Right. Well, we'll see. Here's the other thing I would say. You know, individual uh, African-American woman wanted to put a, she's not a believer, she wanted to put a sign in our yard because she's running for um, state senate. Yeah. And I said, okay, talk to me about what you believe. She says, well, I'm, I'm into women's reproductive health. I says, as a black woman? I, I, I says, I, I don't even want to talk to you about Jesus right now. As a black woman? I said, you ever heard of Margaret Sanger? Margaret Sanger, who Planned Parenthood is, you know, her brainchild, Margaret Sanger's stated goal was to eradicate black people. Yeah. And so this same individual, yeah. you know, is all about Black Lives Matter. This individual yeah. wants to put the sign in my yard. And I'm like, I don't understand how those two go together yeah. at all. And so these are some of the real discussions we have to have. Needless to say, her sign didn't end up in my yard, but. Yeah, yeah. So. All right, so um, people are obviously crying out for change. They want change to take place. Um, is there really a reality of hope 
for change to take place? Or is this just going to be an ongoing battle uh, with, with no light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, so I'm hopeful. Uh, let me give you a couple of things. Uh, when things like this happen, I want to encourage you to refer to something called the communication pyramid. The communication pyramid is um, a great tool that gives us five levels of communication. The first level of communication is the most superficial. It's cliche. Good morning, good morning, how are you? You said something, but you really haven't said anything. The next two levels are what I call sports center talk. It's where most guys hang out. Uh, level two is facts. You know, uh, how many points does Steph Curry have? Um, you know, who won the, uh, the MVP? Did you, did you see Charlie Woods last night? Amazing. Um, level three is opinion. It's sharing what you think. Who do you think is going to win the MVP? Who do you think is going to win the game? Levels four and five are indicator lights of your deepest relationships. Um, it lets you know how you're doing in your marriage, in your friendships, uh, how's ethnic unity happening. Level four is emotive. It's sharing how you feel. Level five is transparency. It's sharing who you are. Level five is kind of hard to quantify. Um, it's just kind of this intuitive sense that you have. Um, you know, you've done a cup of coffee or dinner with someone and you've left there and you go, man, I really experienced them. Well, what you're saying is we had level five transparency kind of communication. Here's what you need to understand. When a racially traumatic event happens, um, I'll put it in African-American, and I think even in a Hispanic context, we are communal people groups, which means when, when something egregious happens to somebody on the other side of the country who's of our same people group, we feel that, and we come to church that Sunday going, please say something, please say something. Our white brothers and sisters, and I don't attach any kind of moral value to this, our white brothers and sisters, there's a disconnect because you tend to see yourself as more of a collection of individuals. You have more of an individualistic deal. So if a white person on the other side of the country, uh, something brutal happens to them, you're not necessarily coming to church the next Sunday hoping Pastor Don says something about it. It's just different ways of filtering that. So I need you to understand that. When something racially traumatic happens, African-Americans, we tend to go level four immediately. Emotive. We're grieving. We feel that. Now here's the problem. Our white brothers and sisters tend to stay in lawyer land at level two. Wait a minute, we don't know the facts. Now, I've only been married 21 years, but I'll tell you, that does not play well in marriage. When my wife comes to me level four and I hang out in lawyer land at level two, that is not a recipe for oneness. If I wanna experience oneness with my, with my wife, let me first stop and feel. It's what the Bible calls grieve with those who grieve. And then we can resurface later on to level two facts. So what we're getting at here is just, is just the art of lamenting. Um, Sung Chan Ra, the scholar, wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. And in that book, Prophetic Lament, he says, he analyzed the worship songs that we sing. He says over 95 of our worship songs are triumphalistic. He has risen. He has conquered. Less than 5% are lament, which means we are hardwiring a generation that does not know what it means to sit in the ashes with people and to just listen. So the first thing I would recommend on the road to solutions is not reading a book, but just grabbing a cup of coffee and entering into each other's narratives to just listen, to feel what they feel 
Secondly, I would say, and it's closely related, have relationships. One of my best friends in the world um, is, a, um, is a white individual who uh, came up to me and said, you know, um, we need to be friends. I mean, it was just kind of, he wanted to have to define the relationship, and I didn't necessarily even know his name first, but he felt compelled. He goes, my, when I look at my, my life, uh, it's all white people, and I just feel compelled. Something's missing. And so we began to build this relationship. And, you know, I remember him inviting me to go hiking with him. I said, well, let me just teach you something about black people. We don't hike. <laughs> like, you want me to go up that mountain for what? <laughs> like, you've never heard of Tyrone getting mauled by a bear in your life. <laughs> Heidi's been mauled, but not Tyrone. <laughs> Keisha, Tyrone, that's not going to happen to us. Uh, but, you know, I say that tongue-in-cheek, tongue in but he's got me duck hunting now, and I love it. I don't duck hunt. <laughs> you don't duck no, hunt? No, I don't duck hunt. I no, love no. it. I absolutely love it. But here's what I'm saying. My life has been enriched, and he would say his life has been enriched through relationships. Hear me. If people are still coming to church primarily out of relationships, then sanctuaries reflect dinner tables. So if you want a multi-ethnic church, it just starts with who you're eating with, who you're having a cup of coffee with. And, and when I look at people's comments on social media or the way we respond to one another, what grieves me is not so much even the differences of opinion, but you can almost tell by the way someone responds to another person, oh, you don't have white friends. Oh, you don't have Hispanic friends. Well, you don't have black, because if you did, not that it would change your convictions, it would change the way you express them. We need each other. We need to be in relationships with one another. Finally, on the solution side, I would say this. God has, if you study scripture, just take a 35,000 foot perspective on scripture. God has provided, created three institutions for human flourishing. The first institution he creates is the family, then the government, then the church. The family is the primary vehicle that God uses to, to penetrate the promised land and to change the culture for his glory. That's Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, look, mom and dad, I want you to talk about these things. What are these things? Talk about me, talk about my word. When you sit down, when you get up, pass them on to your children so that they can teach their children, Psalm 78. Uh, you know, mom and dad, we're the tenured professors of our homes. We're the primary disciples. I don't outsource that to the church. I don't care how great of a youth ministry Discovery Church has, and I'm sure it's phenomenal. They're not going to stand before God as the primary stewards of your kids. That's our job. We're the one passing that on. Now, that's very important. Why? Because even though we're born sinners, racism is a learned behavior. Prejudice, discrimination, learned behavior. And the way we got to challenge that is we need to disciple that out of our kids. And our discipleship has to be a holistic discipleship where we're not just dealing with spiritual things as important as that is. Yes, teach them how to have a good quiet time. Teach them about prayer life and life in the spirit. But we have to give them a robust anthropology so that when Uncle Bob on Christmas Day parks his feet under your table and gives the racially insensitive joke, you need to create a biblically awkward moment in which you say, we don't do that here. We value everybody here. 
That's a part of the discipleship strategy in which we're leading our family uh, in those ways. You know, my, one of my sons, uh, he's had some racially traumatic things happen to him. And we were sitting uh, at dinner a couple months ago and he just said, in effect, I don't like white people and all white people this and, all, and I had to cut him off, uh-uh-uh. And I just ran down the list, Uncle Adam, Aunt Heather, Uncle, uh, Aunt Nikki, so on and so forth. These are white individuals that's been to our home, that we're in relationship with. I had to cut that off at the knees. This is a part of the discipleship process. The next uh, institution is government, and I'll make this quick. Government exists for the flourishing of not just one people group, but all people groups. And... And the thing that I love about the civil rights movement is they utilize government to bring about huge legislative gains. But the problem with government is that while it can change laws, it can never change hearts. That's where the third institution comes in, the church of Jesus Christ. Armed with the gospel of our Lord and Savior, uh, with the spirit of God, the promise of the new covenant, God says, I'm gonna take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. God says, the way I'm gonna change you is from the inside out. When you have those three institutions moving in lockstep harmony, now we're getting down the road with this demonic thing called racism. Okay, that's, that's, that's awesome. Thank you, thank you. The gospel uh, and the solution and our role in it. So as we begin to wrap this up, um, let me tell you what happened here as a result of following the George Floyd incident. I sent a note out to the African-Americans on our staff, and I said, I'm extending an invitation to you. I hope you'll accept the invitation. At our next staff meeting um, on Tuesday, uh, I would like to invite you to stand in front of our staff and just one by one share what you thought and felt in response to what you saw in the video. Um, so thankfully, and I think it says something very good about our African-American staff, they pretty much all said, I'm on, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So we took a staff meeting, one by one they came up and shared. It was a real learning experience for me on several levels, but on the deepest of levels, I came away really struck by the fact that I did not, previous to hearing them, I did not understand the depth of their woundedness and the woundedness of the black community at large. I heard a man say this morning as I was driving to church, I was listening just to a, a pastor speak. I heard him say, and it's almost a quote, you cannot relieve the burden of another until you feel the pressure of that burden. Then he went on to say, when someone asks you a question you can either answer the question or you can ask, answer the questionnaire. He said, don't answer questions, answer questionnaires. In both cases, um, the identification of feeling the woundedness made a difference for me. And responding to, not to questions or issues, but responding to the people who raised them this seems to connect the gospel with this issue of reconciliation, which is what we're, what we're after. Right? How in the word of God does the gospel, the fact that we're doing this days before Christmas, you know, 
Don, why would you do this days before Christmas? To which the answer is, what's more at the heart of Christmas than the gospel and reconciliation? Talk to us for a minute about that from the word. Yeah, that's, um, that's so good. So when we think about the gospel, you know, I, I think for those of us maybe who grew up maybe in more conservative churches, I mean, we could give a basic outline. We were sinners, our sins separated us from God. God sent his only son, who's the only means to relationship with him. And that is the gospel. But I want you to, I want you to understand that the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. My vertical relationship, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, that's of first importance. But it has to play out horizontally in our relationships with other people. I mean, this is all over, all over the scriptures. If you read the Ten Commandments, the first section of the Ten Commandments is vertical. It has to do with our relationship with God. The second section is horizontal. It's our, how we relate to other people. Or Jesus was asked, you know, what's the great commandment? He says, oh, love the Lord your God with the totality of your being. That's vertical. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's horizontal. Um, I could take you to what John said. How can we claim to love God, whom we don't see, vertical, yet hate our brother, who we do see? That's horizontal. By the way, Ray Vanderlyn says, the, the Jewish concept of hate isn't feelings of ill will, it's separation. So how can I claim to love God and be attached to him, but, but be separated from my brother and whom I do see? Of course, for me, uh, Don, the, the penultimate example of this is Ephesians 2. If you just read that whole chapter, verses 1 through 10 is vertical. You've been saved by grace through faith. I love what my friend Matt Chandler says about grace. Grace means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert. It's God's unmerited favor. We're not saved by our works. But keep reading verse 11, right on the heels of that. He goes, therefore, don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. What he's about to say is gonna be connected to what he just said, you Gentiles in the flesh. Huh, he's now going to connect how I relate to people who are ethnically different than me with the vertical dimensions of the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, just like a greedy Christian is an oxymoron, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron, so is a racist Christian or a racially indifferent Christian. These are people made in the image of God. They're family. And one day we're gonna spend eternity together why not start right now in, in fleshing out that horizontal unity brought about through the vertical reconciliation that we have? That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. We are gonna begin a series, by the way, in February in Ephesians. Last thought, we'll land the, the plane here. As a church, Discovery Church, across all of our campuses, people watching online, we talk a lot around here after messages about what did God say and what are we going to do about it in response, all right? Because we want to be hearers of the word, we want to be doers of the word. So what would you say to those of us in the church who look like me, and what would you say to those in the church who look like you? So for those of you who look like me, uh, who you would say you come from um, a minority people group, one of the things that concerns me, and it's certainly not true of everyone, is that oftentimes we can, we can relate to our white brothers and sisters as if they're working from a deficit with us. 
What I mean by that is we automatically can assume the worst in our white brothers and sisters. This, this whole idea of you're guilty until proven innocent, right? And I would say that's something I have to fight all the time. Uh, and I would encourage you to join that fight with me. Um, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to not be overcome by roots of bitterness, to forgive and forgive, as Matthew 18 says, 70 times seven. Um, I, I went to Bible college, so I'd get out of math. I think that's 490 times. But even then, he's, being, he's using hyperbole. So that's one thing uh, I would say. Uh, to my white brothers and sisters, I, I would constantly wrestle with the issue of privilege. And how are you stewarding that well? And I would encourage you to get in relationships uh, with, with minorities, but not just from a helping posture. Mm -hmm. If all your relationships with people of color are from a helping posture, you're going to entrench this paternalistic way of doing life. You actually need to do life with minorities who don't need you. People like me, I've got good credit. I just sold a house in the Bay Area, bought a house in North Carolina. Um, you know, I say that a bit, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but not every minority is poor. I mean, I can actually take you out to lunch and pay for it, okay? I may take you up on that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so just enjoy the relationship. Um, do what uh, Pastor Don just modeled, and that's ask questions, listen, and watch what God does over time. Um, you know, my friend Dr. Eric Mason says it, proximity breeds empathy. Distance breeds suspicion. When I'm close with people who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like me, that, that brings a sense, of, a sense of empathy. And listen, we're not doing this out of tolerance. I mean, that's the secular worldly ethic. And tolerance is such a low ethic. I tolerate you. Christians aren't called to tolerance. We're called to love. And what energizes all of this isn't some worldly liberalism. Um, it, it's, it's the lamb. It's Jesus Christ. He's the center of it all. I do that because he exercised his privilege, came down, got on the cross, died for me when he didn't have to. The least I can do is reciprocate that love with everyone I see, especially the ethnically other. Amen, amen. Hey, can we take a moment, um, can we, uh, hold on. Can we take a moment to reflect upon this application in, in this moment? If you need to close your eyes for a moment, just quiet yourself. Two questions, what's God saying to you? What are you gonna do in response? Brian has shared some wonderful insight, understanding, truth. What's God saying to you? And in a moment, I'll ask him to pray. Let's pray. Father, race has done such a number across our world, but especially we feel it deeply in these United States of America. And this whole social construct that extracts or extends value to people based on the level of pigmentation 
It's ridiculous. And yet, Lord God, we are drawn as people of the scriptures to the vision of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 where John said, I looked up into heaven and I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lamb. And Jesus, when you taught us to pray, you said, I, I want you to pray our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Mm. Your kingdom come, your will be done on yes. earth as it is in heaven. Yes. So if I look up into heaven and I, I see this multi-ethnic cohort drawn together, not by an ethic of tolerance, but by the, the blood of the lamb, then we pray in Orlando as it is in heaven. Yes, Lord in Discovery Church yes, as it is in heaven. Yes, Lord. In our relationships as it is in heaven. Yes, Lord. So show us, Lord God, show us. Spirit of living God, disturb us. Those patterns in our lives, Lord God, those biases, those prejudices that we nurture and harbor, we repent of these things, Lord Jesus. And I pray that, that unsaved people would walk into Discovery Church and they would say, oh, how they love. I've just never seen this before. Mm -hmm. They're not just seeing diversity. Mm. They're seeing ethnic unity. Yes. People loving together. Yes. God, do it, we pray. Yes. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Would you thank Brian for uh, being with us this weekend?